You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Welcome to our speaker and our audience today um, to this final talk in what has been a great series about talking gender in the EU at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies this year. My name is Sabine Lang and I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Jackson School. I also direct the Center for West European Studies and uh, the Erasmus-funded Jean Monnet Center of Excellence, as well as the, the Center for Russian, East European and Central Asian Studies. So welcome everybody. Um, those of you who have been with us uh, before this year uh, know that this series is really intended to bring together um, informative talks by informed scholars about a loosely threaded topic of gender equality in the European Union and its member states. Um, and after we've now had three talks addressing particular member state predicaments, we've had a talk on Latvia, on France and on Poland. Today, we go to the transnational level of the European Union and more specifically the European Parliament. Um, I also want to acknowledge our sponsors without whom this uh, event and many others we do would not be possible. That is the Jackson School, in particular the Center for Global Studies, the Russian East European Central Asian Studies uh, Center, Center for West European Studies, the Jean Monnet Center for Excellence, as well as those who work to make these talks a success and organize them exquisitely. And that is the ZWES Managing Director Phil Lyon, as well as our program and outreach coordinators, Jessica Meyerson and Susanna Haley. So to all of you, a big thank you. We're very fortunate today uh, to have Professor Petra Arens with us. Um, we're especially uh, fortunate since about a week ago, I learned that it is a holiday in Germany today um, and it's uh, Christ's Ascension, um, a holiday in Berlin where she is right now. So um, I'm really excited and pleased that she's still on a holiday evening is able to be here with us and talk to us. Since uh, 2019, Professor Ahrens is a senior researcher in the Faculty of the Social Sciences at Tampere University in Finland in a project that deals with the topic that uh, she is going to address with us today. It's called EU Gendem. It's a project on gender, party politics and democracy in Europe with a focus on European Parliament party groups. She currently also is a visiting scholar and visiting professor at the Free University of Berlin in the political science department. She received her PhD in sociology at Humboldt University in Berlin in 2014. And her research really is situated 
broadly in gender policies and politics in the European Union. She has done work on civil society organizations, on participatory democracy, gender mainstreaming, and so on. Um, previously, she also was a guest professor for comparative politics and gender and diversity at the Department of Political Science at the University of Antwerp. And she held a very prestigious Marie Curie Fellowship um, with the European to, uh, Union on effects of institutional change on participatory democracy of civil society organizations. Um, her books um, include uh, Actors, Institutions, and the Making of EU Gender Equality Programs, which came out in 2018 with Paul Grave Macmillan and Gender Equality in Politics, a book about implementing party voters in Germany and Austria, where I have the pleasure uh, to be a co-author with her and Birgit Sauer and Katja Schmielewski. So um, we're very happy to have you with us, Petra, and you will now lead us into a discussion of how the European Parliament addresses issues of gender equality. Thank you, everybody. And I turn this over to you. Yes, thanks very much for the very kind invitation and for the very warm welcome. So, yes, Gender in the European Parliament is the broad title of this um, talk. And I will uh, directly um, start a little bit more with some more general aspects. So for those who are not so familiar with the European Parliament, maybe, um, so some general aspects. The European Parliament existed like from the early beginnings of the, um, the creation of the European um, communities, but um, it held the first direct elections only in 1979 before um, the uh, members of parliaments were delegated by the member states. So since 1979, we have um, the uh, direct elections and it's a degressive proportional representation. So this means the general electoral system or election laws are a proportional representation, but um, it also means that the bigger member states have proportionally fewer seats as the smaller ones. Um, since 1992, the European Parliament gained um, co-decision powers next to the Council of Europe. And this was renamed as Ordinary Legislative Procedure OLP with the Lisbon Treaty 2009. And since then, this is basically putting the European Parliament as a co-equal co-legislator to the Council in almost all policy spheres. There are some exceptions, but generally like most of um, legislation now adopted in the European Union is um, co-decided by the European Parliament and the Council. Um, it also has budget authority and Overall, this um, is, uh, shows us an increasing parliamentarization of EU politics over time. So the parliament has become more powerful over time and has been more involved. And um, this uh, tipped a little bit the balance between the council and the European parliament. And it's also, um, the, the European parliament also approves the European commission president and the college of commissioners, like all of them together, not single ones, but they run, for example, uh, hearings. Uh, in the European Parliament for all different commissioners and then they signal if they're going to reject some and gender equality or particularly also LGBTQI rights or questions on that 
um, have led to rejecting some of the commissioners um, in some of the last um, uh, elections of the European Commission or the approval of the European Commission. Um, generally also with this uh, connection, which is now quite uh, congruent between the European Commission um, uh, renewal and the European Parliament elections is the discussion about the Spitzenkandidatur, which has only been um, used uh, two times in 2014 and 2019, totally different processes, also with some interesting gender aspects. I'm not gonna uh, dig into that now because it's more about the um, member states, the council and the European Parliament, less so on gender within the European Parliament, which is the topic uh, today. But if you wish so, we can also discuss that later in uh, the question and answer session. Um, generally, the European Parliament is, has, has a quite strong reputation as a progressive actor in gender and sexuality politics um, over time, but, but in general, this is, is seen one, as one of the um, pushers for uh, rights on, on, on the supranational level. Simultaneously, what we face is gender equality backlash in many, many uh, member states. Um, I think there was this talk by Esbieta Korolczuk just um, right before. Uh, where you had some ideas about what, what this means. Um, but also this means that you have like populist, right-wing, right extremist parties access in the European Parliament. And um, this, of course, shapes also how gender equality and sexuality rights are discussed in the European Parliament. Um, generally on the important features of gender in the European Parliament, what I'm gonna look a little bit into is political representation, into the political groups, into committees and a little bit into the policies. So when we start with political representation, this is uh, the trajectory of uh, the share of women and men in um, percentage points uh, since the European Parliament uh, was created in 1952, even though a different name back then. And as you can see, it's um, really moving together. The gender gap is uh, really closing over time and particularly since the direct elections in 1979, this gap is becoming smaller. Um, as you can see here, it says 39.5% uh, uh, for uh, the last election, 2019. This is actually, you know, directly after the elections, we had like more than 40%, 40.6%, but uh, due to Brexit, um, the uh, British delegation uh, left and with them, um, a lot of um, women members of the European Parliament. So they had quite a high share in the national delegation. And uh, this led to an overall um, decrease in uh, the women's share, even though only slightly. So um, the question, um, you know, why is there still not parity? Why are we still a little bit far away from that? Um, this is... Um, of course, because the national parties are gatekeepers and some studies show that this um, particularly relates to nominating women. So it's less that uh, it's a question of voter preference, but it's really a question of uh, who nominates women on which positions on the list. I'll go, that in, go into that in a little bit detail soon. And um, next to the political groups in the European Parliament, which I will uh, explain soon, um, you also have Euro parties and the Euro parties, they are really um, um, bigger supranational party ideas or like party formations, but they are not really pushing for parity. So, so this is also something or like most of them are not really pushing for parity as, as their core topic in the, in the elections. 
Um, so what is uh, important, what was already like a little bit um, hinted at when I mentioned the uh, UK delegation leaving, um, the um, share is quite differently spread over the countries. So this is um, the uh, last date data from two, this March 2021. As you can see, there's a really broad range with Finland leading uh, with 57.1% uh, uh, women's share, while there is, for example, for Cyprus here at the up, uh, uh, lower end with not a single woman elected among their six MEPs. So as you can see, there's quite a broad a variation in women's representation. Um, uh, and the left-right division of parties is not really uh, a good uh, explanation for that, as I will soon show. But um, it's it's also not also not a question of as you can see here at the bottom um, at the electoral list. It's also quite mixed. Some is with preferential voting. Some have closed lists. Some have single transferable votes. And this doesn't really make such a difference for um, for the share of women. Equally, the question of gender quotas, are there um, are the, uh, gender quotas um, that are applicable in some of the countries, the reason why they have a, a higher share? This is also not one of the reasons, as you can see, see here in the middle part, um, that it's quite mixed with um, quotas or non-quotas in the different, um, in the different uh, countries. For the Central and Eastern Europe, Christina Chiva, for example, found earlier for earlier elections that um, if a party holds a positive stance towards uh, European integration, it's more likely to nominate more women. Um, this doesn't hold true for Western European countries, that there is not such a connection. And this is also um, um, not necessarily the case anymore for all the parties we have currently in the European Parliament, but that was one explanation earlier. Another explanation uh, accepted for a long time was the concept of second order elections, so that uh, since the European Parliament has no serious powers, um, then you can also just elect women because it's not so important. That was uh, the idea, so it was easier to put women forward. Uh, but uh, interestingly, even with increasing powers, as you, as you saw, the number of women or the share of, of a woman uh, increased and didn't uh, and did not uh, decrease. So looking at the political groups to explain them a little bit, um, generally for the European Parliament um, um, there was a power gain but also for the political groups over time uh, in conjunction with that. Um, the political groups are really the uh, crucial um, actors in the supranational democracy. They are really unique to the European Parliament and different from national politics. So this means these are alliances of national party delegations and they are formed according to the EP rules of procedure. And they stipulate that you need at least 23 um, MEPs from at least seven member states. And this was uh, really, you know, this changed in between. There was uh, previously or like some some, some time ago was still possible to have like um, political groups formed from one delegation, but uh, with enlargements, uh, enlargements over time, they changed the rules to make sure that you have a more supranational um, compilation, uh, composition of, of the po political groups. This also means that for some political groups or that, that a lot of political groups who, in, who intended to form couldn't form because they didn't find seven member states or, or parties from seven member states willing to to, to join. Um, interestingly, um, there is also no full congruency between Euro parties, so like parties 
uh, as you know them from, from the, the national level, and uh, political groups. So this means that um, not uh, in political groups, there are sometimes Euro parties with other national delegations. Sometimes there are parts of Euro parties in one um, political group and others in another political group. So there is no real um, match as you would find on the national level between, you know, if you have one uh, party elected, it will usually form also a faction in the parliament. This is not necessarily the case. Um, the rise of illiberalism, radical right plus Europe skepticism and populism changed the setting in the European Parliament and really initiated a lot of new research on what this means for political, for the decision making and um, for the policies coming out of uh, the House. And um, the internal dem democratic practices often power relations between the political groups, uh, groups really remain still under researched, particularly from a gender perspective. Um, so uh, what the focus today is a little bit is um, understanding this supranational democracy by unpacking how the political groups operate, particularly their democratic practices and uh, policy making and gender aspects. Um, for instance, um, for political group formation, it also plays, gender plays a different role in different uh, phases. I can return to that if you would hear, would like to hear more details. Um, this is ongoing research, research from EU Gendarm, so uh, I would have to pull this together quickly. Um, so to have some overview about the political groups, we have currently seven in 2021. They were all formed after the uh, last elections. The biggest still is the group of the European People's Party, also Christian Demo Democrats, the EPP, uh, which realize some, some pro-European integration uh, positions and a conservative outlook. It's dominated by the German CDU-CSU um, delegation and also included until very recently the Hungarian um, Fidesz party of uh, Viktor Orban. As you can see, um, I've put here the founding years uh, for not for the political groups, but also for the Euro parties to some extent. So this is kind of mixture, the number of MEPs and the share of women MEPs in each of the political groups. Um, here you can see how they fulfill the member states requirement and the number of um, national party delegations. As you can see, here's really a lot of variation. Also, as regards the share of women MEPs, which ranges from 50, um, 52.7 for the groups of the Greens Free Alliance to uh, a low uh, in the EPP of 30.8%. Um, so next to the EPP, there is the group of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, the European Part Parliament, S&D, um, which is also pro-European integration, uh, currently um, dominated by the Spanish, German and Italian um, party delegations. Uh, Renew Europe group is, uh, was formed, um, or is kind of new mixture or um, uh, um, adaptation of the um, previous Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, the ALDE, um, ALDE group that was uh, created like before. Um, this is also home to the French uh, Macron uh, uh, group and was a merger of this uh, ALDE with, with the French uh, um, Macron's um, election list. Um, it also holds pro-European integration and then you have already like the um, far right 
right-wing extremist identity and democracy group also formed um, uh, uh, after this election, having now the fourth position in the parliament. Um, it was uh, a successor of the European, nation, uh, European Nations and Freedom uh, Group from the last parliament. Um, and uh, it has like um, the, the typical populist parties uh, you, you are certainly aware of. You have the group of the Greens European Free Alliance, um, which is the fifth uh, here. Um, also quite pro-European. Then you have the more conservatives, as the name already says, European Conservatives and Reformists Group, ECR, which is now after Brexit dominated by the Polish Law and Justice Party. So it really drifted a little bit more to the conservative and right-wing um, part, uh, particularly anti-gender, anti-LGBTQI rights um, part of, of the um, um, political dimensions. And then you have um, the left in the European Parliament, GUE NGL, which is the, um, a mixture of ex-communist parties from Central and Eastern European country member states and left parties mainly from Northern Europe, but also uh, with currently large delegations from Spain, France and Greece, and having quite mixed um, positions on EU integration. Um, overall, what we can see for uh, women's share in the European Parliament is that it's constantly uh, increasing across all political groups somehow. You know, so now for e EPP, it was going down a little bit uh, over the last elections, but usually it's um, quite, um, you see a trajectory really in, in um, uh, overall positive trend uh, for the development. When we now look at um, the different political groups and what their position is or how cohesive they are on gender equality policy, um, I have uh, an overview from the last European Parliament, I don't have the data for this one yet, um, about political group cohesion and uh, gender equality. So on the left hand, you see the cohesion rates for the political groups in all policy areas, so how um, this means, are they voting in the same way? As you can see, the, uh, back then the EFDD actually uh, was totally split. This was also due because there was uh, the um, Italian Cinque Stella always voting against the rest of the group um, positions. Uh, you see that also ENF and ECR weren't, you know, um, totally um, consistent in, in their uh, voting. But if you look to the right-hand side compared for EU gender equality policy, um, you can see that the, the numbers or the cohesion rates for the left-leaning parties of GUE, NGL, Greens, FI and SND uh, go up, while the center parties and the more um, uh, right-leaning parties with the exception of ENF, where the, the numbers also go down, but not pro, gender equality, but anti-gender equality. For the others, uh, the cohesion rates are lower, particularly um, split seems the European, um, the EPP, which you can see here with the blue bar, uh, which falls from their usually high cohesion of more than 90% to below 80% in gender equality policy, which has a lot to do with um, quite uh, varying positions on that given in the uh, Northern and um, northern and central European part as compared to other parts. Um, well, to look at the next uh, level, the European Parliament committees, um, 
It's, uh, this is really the day-to-day -day work of the European Parliament. It's legislation, reports, resolutions, everything you can think of that is produced is usually produced in the European Parliament committees. Um, there are currently 20 standing committees in various policy fields with 25 to 73 members. The membership for each political group is calculated uh, depending on the overall share. So this means the committees all mirror uh, the, the plenary in that sense. Um, they also have a lot of important leadership positions to offer, the committee chairs, coordinators and rapporteurs. And after the 2019 election, it's now the first time that the committee chairs um, are um, in parity. So there are like an equal number of women and men leading committees. Um, it's uh, a little bit different for the coordinators and rapporteurs is a different story also depending on um, on the policy field. Um, but what we can usually see in the numbers for um, the, the share on the committees is quite a gendered uh, division of labor. So you have a high share of women in the committees on employment and social affairs, as well in the civil liberties, justice and home affairs, or culture and education. And you have a quite low share in the um, also often high prestigious uh, committees of constitutional affairs, security and defense, economic and monetary affairs and transport and tourism. So um, what is important to know is that adoption in the committee usually leads also to adoption in plenary. So there is usually when you have an agreement in the committee, it's um, also approved in the plenary. And also hope, hopefully important um, uh, to consider is that the legislation uh, proposed by the European Commission, if it's not solved in one in, in this election period, it just carries over to the next one. So it's not that you have completely new agendas um, uh, invented after elections. Um, when it comes to the main um, equality body or the main uh, committee responsible for gender equality, that's the Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality, the so-called FAM Committee. These are always um, the French abbreviations uh, for the committees uh, usually. Um, it's quite specific because it has something that it's, is not existent for other uh, standing committees. It has a so-called neutralized committee membership. This means um, membership is voluntary and it's not, not counted towards other committee memberships. So usually MEPs have one full membership in a committee and a substitute membership in others, very seldom that they have uh, two committee memberships. But um, uh, in, in principle, it's possible for that they also sit on the farm committee. The farm committee membership is not uh, discounted towards uh, other memberships, which is um, a good and um, a bad thing, as you, is, is, uh, if you want so, um, because um, to um, the neutral, it means that you have, of course, a higher workload. So it really depends on the commitment of the ones who join the committee. Um, and on the other hand, it's good because since the, the, the members of the farm committee sit in this committee and in other committees, they can also take uh, issues from the, from the farm committee into other committees or the other way around and discuss how to integrate uh, gender aspects or gender equality aspects um, in the different committees. Um, the farm committee receives really few legislative proposals usually, and it's also often a competition with other committees 
uh, about who will take the lead in proposals. So often you have, um, let's say, for example, um, some um, uh, a proposal or legislation in in um, in social or employment policies, and then you have a competition, always a strong um, gender angle, and then you have competition between the fund committee and uh, the, the employment committee about who is uh, in charge of that. Same applies for the civil liberties and justice, justice and home affairs committee, the LIBA committee, because that one is um, in charge of anti-discrimination policies. And of course, there is quite some overlap between gender equality and anti-discrimination. So if um, there are proposals or reports or anything like that, or the necessity to respond to the European Commission or hold a position towards the council, there is a competition between the FAM and others of who is uh, taking the lead uh, for this. Um, the main tasks are still EU gender equality policy. So everything that is as like gender equality on on the name automatically goes to the um, to the farm committee and um, they are also in charge of um, let's say monitoring gender mainstreaming in the European Parliament I will go a little bit into more detail on this uh, soon um, and what we also see now with the changes in the composition of the European Parliament that it has you know, change a little bit from a feminist stronghold, so from committed feminists uh, joining the committee on a, a voluntary basis um, to internal struggles also because radical right and anti-gender MEPs access the, the, the farm committee with the purpose to um, water down the agenda to uh, avoid any uh, adoption of uh, um, progressive uh, policies. So this is uh, a, a struggle that still is now, as I will show soon, um, quite dominated by the left-leaning parties, but it's um, it's much more contested than uh, in, let's say, 10 years ago. So when we look at uh, uh, political group impact and uh, on, on gender equality, you see on the left-hand side um, the usual group's footprint and plenary, so whose proposal goes through, who has uh, the possibility to get their positions adopted in plenary, arriving from the committees. And you see that it's usually the biggest groups, that's um, EPP, SND, and ALDE. Back then, it was is also the previous um, legislature. So they were able to put their footprint on a lot of um, uh, in, on, on the majority of the proposals adopted in plenary. But if you look at the right-hand side at the group's footprint and fund, so who is dominating the decisions in the fund committee, you see uh, it's quite left-leaning uh, with the GUE, NGL, Greens, EFA, SND, and ALDE usually um, getting their positions adopted, while EPP, ECR, EFD, ENF have um, basically not much um, reflection of their positions on gender equality in the uh, footprint of the farm committee. Um, so um, this is uh, for the farm committee. I will look now a little bit more into gender mainstreaming the European Parliament. Um, just quickly checking, yeah, still some time left. That's nice. So gender mainstreaming the European Parliament, um, it's interesting, it's one of the few parliaments worldwide that has adopted gender mainstreaming to apply it within um, 
their own policies and also administration and so on. So in all of their work, um, the first resolution adopted in the form of an own initiative report was in 2003. And since then, the European Parliament adopted six resolutions on how to implement gender mainstreaming in the European Parliament. And each of the resolutions proposed different strategies, how to move forward, how to improve the process, um, and the resolutions cover really like the whole work of the, the, the European Parliament, the committee work, uh, the work of delegations, the EP Bureau and Secretariat, and also EP staff policies. For all of this, there have been um, uh, recommendations and there have been uh, created a lot of uh, new bodies also uh, over time due to these resolutions. So um, due to um, one of the early resolutions, there is now a high level group on gender equality and diversity. And uh, the first thing invented also since 2003 was the gender mainstreaming network, which means that in each um, committee, one MEP is in charge of uh, gender mainstreaming or looking, you know, making sure that gender mainstreaming is respected or that gender aspects are taken into account in the committee work. Um, then there is an additional group now of equality and diversity coordinators, which are more um, in a um, political group level coordination to see uh, how to do that. And um, since the last resolution of 2019, um, I'm sorry, since the um, resolution of 2016, there exists a standing rapporteur on gender mainstreaming. So one MEP is uh, uh, credited with this role, with a standing rapporteur, and compiles um, the, um, the, the report or the, uh, the own initiative report on how gender mainstreaming moved forward and what happened in the European Parliament. Um, it also um, created a lot of interesting tools over time, something um, for example, that the FAM uh, invites the gender mainstreaming network members to hearings to report on what is happening in the other committees. And this usually led uh, to, to the effect that they are the, uh, the, the, the MEPs feel pressure that they need to report something. So they try really to, to come up uh, with, with something to say how the committee will work on that in the future or has been working on that before. Um, there's also something called gender mainstreaming amendments, but this is uh, a tiny tool where the fund committee adds single words like gender equality or women or women and men or something like that to um, amendments to other reports or legislation that like, tries to feed them in to this. Um, since 2017-18, uh, with one of the last resolutions, there's something quite new. Um, each committee adopts a gender action plan. So um, this is uh, really taking gender mainstreaming a little bit to the next level. So the, uh, the, the um, committees need to define what they're going to do on gender mainstreaming. To visualize a little bit the process, what you can see here, gender mainstreaming in the European Parliament means that you have the FAM committee as the biggest actor trying to move forward the committees and the political groups that also, of course, match together. Um, you have the gender mainstreaming action plans and uh, MEPs and administrators in charge of gender mainstreaming. It also has to some extent some calls, some discussions in the uh, political groups about gender mainstreaming practices, not in all. Um, and the farm oversees the whole process. Um, to give you some example of what it means uh, currently to implement gender mainstreaming or to um, to how, how what what is effect or is there then an effect of, of this or is the European Parliament really such a strong 
promoter of gender equality. I um, took some recent examples of COVID-19 and gender equality. It's uh, some research done by my colleagues, uh, Johanna Kantola and Anna Elomeki, who are looking into this. So um, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the crisis management about around COVID-19 was dominated by member states and the EP was really in the, in the backseat or like really pushed out of this process for some time. Um, a lot of the usual EP procedures and decision-making process were put on hold with so-called non-necessary committees suspended and, and also no distance attendance for plenary until October, 2021 sorry, 2020, this is a mistake, it's not <laughs> this October, last October, since then it was all, is also possible to have um, to attend from a distance, but until then um, it wasn't possible, which also depending on which, from which country the MEPs were uh, made some difference for them if they can attend at all or not. Um, among the so-called unnecessary committees was also apparently the FAM committee, which only held two meetings between March and June last year. Um, also, um, they early on requested to compile um, uh, own, initiative, own initiative report of COVID-19 and gender, but this was the authorization um, uh, from the EP leadership considering really delayed this report. So while a lot of other processes were ongoing, uh, this own initiative report couldn't really take off. Uh, after a while it was compiled and then it was really uh, quite some intense struggles about including sexual and reproductive health rights and LGBTQI rights, but can it be mentioned, in which way can it be mentioned and so on. And um, actually then the, um, the left-leaning parties, as you can uh, imagine, we, who still have a stronghold in the um, farm committee, um, were able to um, make sure that a lot of things remain. It was in the end adopted in January 2021, uh, with, uh, led by a rapporteur from EPP, uh, which also where you can see sometimes how uh, the language changes in some of the amendments. Meanwhile, the Budget Committee and the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, ECON, decided on this uh, huge um, um, next generation EU and recover and resilience facility. So this new instrument to tackle the impact of um, COVID-19. And I will just quickly look into that. And then I'm also already at getting to my conclusion, seeing that I'm running out of time here. Um, so when you look at uh, COVID-19 and uh, gender equality, um, the committees who were in charge budget and uh, the econ committee are quite well known for their gender insensitivity. So to no surprise, the first rounds lacked um, any gender, any, any reflection on the impact on uh, gender equality. Um, but there has been quite some intense cross-group mobilization via the FAM committee members to strengthen the, uh, the dimension. So a lot of the FAM members who were uh, either members of the econ committee or substitute members try to, to or um, close to, to their fellow uh, uh, committee members, try to feed in additional amendments. And um, in the end, uh, they were to some extent um, successful. So this new, um, um, the, the EP position on these new uh, instruments included actually some references to gender aspects and also included uh, the obligation that gender mainstreaming or gender equality needs to be included or be a measure when um, the money is distributed. On the other hand, 
what you see here is from uh, a report done for the Green Party by uh, Elisabeth Stadt, uh, Klatzer and Christina Schlager, um, who analyzed um, the sectors who were highly affected by the corona crisis, like education, health and social work, uh, accommodation and food services, arts, culture and recreation. And if you can't read the small signs, the red stands for the share of the uh, women in the workforce and the green for uh, those of men in the workforce. And when you look at the focus sectors for the EU recovery fund, um, it totally turns the picture. So there was a lot of planning for construction, agriculture, energy, transport, information and communication, all male dominated. So it remains to be seen how effective these uh, few um, gender mainstreaming and gender aspects in uh, this instrument will be in the end. To conclude, the European Parliament is certainly still one of the uh, an important supranational gender equality actor with a long history and a quite dedicated body, the Farm Committee, particularly in times when the Council uh, with a quite uh, conservative um, um, composition uh, is, uh, you know, um, not the first to 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 support gender equality, or as just recently happened, even deletes gender equality as a term from from um, their um, final remarks, council remarks. Um, overall, the EP has become more gender equal over time in its composition. Um, there is this growing um, presence of radical right-wing and anti-gender, also and LGBTQI parties that um, really turn such um, related rights into an um, increasingly uh, contested policy field, but, but still now, uh, it's more the question um, of the European People's Party and uh, which side they will take to, to tip majorities. Um, the institutionalization of gender mainstreaming over time ensures to some extent engagement with gender equality, but whether this will lead in the end to better substantive representation across all policy fields is an open question. Um, but uh, overall, the EP impact on gender equality depends on the collaboration with the Commission and the Council and internally on cross-group mobilization by far. And here I conclude. Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Petra, for this uh, deep dive into an institution that I think many of us do not know in detail. Um, and uh, as questions are starting to come in, um, maybe let's start with um, the, a, a general question about how do you research the European Parliament in these times? I mean, how do you research it in general? Uh, so do parliamentary groups like um, Identity and Democracy or um, you know, the, the more conservative groups, do they grant access? Um, what is the data situation that the EP itself produces? Um, I understand this is really the first large-scale project on the European Parliament that you're undertaking with your colleagues in Tampere. And um, yeah, so what was it like generally and what has it been like since COVID hit in March of last year? Well, okay, so in total we are six um, in the team. The, the PI is uh, Johanna Cantola, we are two senior researchers, Anna Elomeki and uh, me, two postdocs, Jerry Miller and Barbara Gavera, and one PhD student, Valentin Berthe. And um, we have different sets of data we are collecting. So, for example, um, 
Uh, we do a political ethnography. So this means like shadowing MEPs, uh, attending meetings, um, taking uh, notes um, through these this meeting, ethnographic field notes. And this has been done uh, mainly by uh, Cherry Millan, who's a, a political ethnographer. And she has compiled this kind of data sets next to uh, a lot of interviews she did. So we do a lot of uh, interviews. We did it, we started with a pilot in, um, before the elections in, in 2018, early 2019. And there we had, I think, 50 interviews or something like that. Across, almost across, I think the, the exception then was, to, uh, no, we had actually from every single group interviews. We interview uh, MEPs, but also political staff from the political groups and also EP administration. And uh, since then we had a, um, like a full, um, trying you know, after the elections uh, 2019 uh, with expert interviews to collect uh, across uh, all political groups. We were quite, we're still, it's still a little bit ongoing, but uh, in total we now have together with the pilot more than 130 interviews. And they are quite evenly spread across the political groups, also depending on their size. They are quite evenly spread about, um, between women and men. And also uh, we have a majority of MEPs, but also quite some staff interviews so that we have like really full coverage of uh, all of it. We uh, look also specifically in three um, policy fields um, on economic policy that's uh, majorly and um, mainly done by uh, Anna Elomeki. Um, one uh, on social policy by Barbara Gavera, uh, who's looking into the social pillar, and then one on uh, gender-based violence. That's the task of Valentin um, Berthier, who also looked, for example, into Me Too EP and the Istanbul Convention. That's part of her, her, her PhD. And um, apart from that, Johanna and uh, I are looking a lot into the democratic practices, political group formation, um, generally about how these groups um, discuss also gender equality, about gender mainstreaming and, and all of this. And then, um, so all the interviews are anonymized, transcribed, and then we did a team coding process with Atlas TI, or Atlas TI probably in, a, in English. So it's uh, really that we developed inductively, like we had some ideas about what we want to code, but then we also have some inductive coding. So we have really, um, system to circulating um, all the interviews or like uploading new interviews and then everyone has their turn and the ones and then we have a system to go through again so that everyone also looks into to make sure that there is some intercoder right uh, reliability i hope this ex explains a little bit <laughs> how we do that i can probably continue for like half an hour on that <laughs> I bet you could, but let's let's take stock of some other um, interesting questions here. Um, but so I also understand that COVID did not really massively oh. impact this operation then. Good point. Um, just very quickly on that. So we were lucky because um, Jerry Miller did her uh, ethnographic uh, field visit um, a few weeks or started a few weeks before COVID hit. So um, I think she lost a week or two from because then the European Parliament was closed, but before she was able to do all of this. And um, from then on, we did a lot of um, Skype interviews or telephone interviews. And this uh, went amazingly well. So we were also quite surprised. Um, and to, to address uh, the different, uh, also the difficult political groups, you know, the more resistant ones, do you get like ID and democracy or something like that? Um, 
we are making full use of the different languages we can we have in our team because you know we cover easily um, uh, Polish, Finnish, German, um, Dutch would also work, French, uh, Spanish to some extent, Italian to some extent, English of course. So this is quite a variety, and then this is like you know trying to 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 figure out who you can contact uh, somehow. And then also if you go to some of the events when it was still possible, you could you know afterwards try to hook up with an MEP and ask for an interview if it would be feasible at some point. So this is basically how we did that. Thank you. So uh, I'm going in the Q and A a bit more deeper. Um, our colleague uh, Louisa Davidson Schmidt with us uh, and is asking um, that, that or first stating that she finds your slide on the cohesion intra-party co or inner party cohesion uh, quite interesting because um, the uh, inner party cohesion goes down on gendered issues for some party groups and uh, I guess her question here is to what degree um, can that be dissected? Are there specific issues within gender? For example, is cohesion um, stronger or less strong on LGBTI issues than on more traditional women's rights issues? Mm -hmm. You could address that. <laughs> I, I wish I would be able to answer this question because um, one of the points is um, the, the data um, they use for, for, for that was um, along the committee lines. So, um, and you can easily distinguish the, the, uh, the Women's uh, Rights Committee, right? Because this is one, and they are in charge for gender equality. It's not so easy with LGBTQI rights because they, um, as I said before, the, the anti-discrimination policy is in the liberty, uh, liberty, Civil Liberties and Justice and Home Affairs Committee. And this is also um, in charge of several other things like migration, for example. And it's not, um, not so easily done, or well, at least we didn't do it, um, to dissect uh, the votes within the committee and check the cohesion along different policy issues in that sense. So you can look at the, uh, the LEAP committee at the total, but this doesn't say much about um, um, LGBTQI rights. And these are usually not, um, unless, you know, unless the, uh, the, the, the um, the thumb committee puts it in some amendments or tries to, um, to, to put it in. It's usually not discussed as um, policy in the, the thumb committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And also, maybe can I just add um, that, you know, there is this, the thumb committees on gender equality and women's rights. And um, apart from that, there is something, called, there are also other systems, subsystems in the European Parliament are called intergroups, for example, and they are like, gatherings, sometimes even with civil society. And there is, for example, an intergroup on, um, on LGBTI rights to do. To, to, so this is also cross-political um, cross group, but also with uh, civil societies. And in that sense, they are, um, they are trying to push these things in or take this, this agenda forward, but it's not a committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we move out from the committee to um, the EP as such um, for a moment with a couple of questions. Um, one, so how do we really explain the fact that the EP parliament shows higher, overall higher descriptive representation than most of the national or many of the national parliaments in 
the slide you show. So what in, in your research comes up that makes women's candidacies and women being elected more successful on the EP level? Well, um, so first of all, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a past dependency. So they have been there already. So that you have the incumbency um, um, a point, even though it's not so strong as it often change, changes a lot, you know, with like the different uh, elections in, 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 in member states and who takes the lead because it has become more vivid in all member states, you know, who, who gets what share. Um, it's also, um, yeah, it's, it, there is not really a good explanation for that. To some extent, it has to do, for example, for some countries that it's um, a proportional um, representation system, right? So that uh, if you usually have a first past the post uh, and this, it doesn't exist, um, then uh, this is something um, where the number of women basically automatically increases a little bit. And this is the case for, for quite some, some member states. Also interesting, if we say gender quotas, it's interesting that some of the countries, um, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm, I, I just lack which one it was. I think Italy, Italy, for example, has a quota for EP elections, but not on the national level. No. So this is uh, something they apply to the EP, but not to, to other things. Um, and this is also the case for others. So, and then still, you know, I think it's a mixture of a lot different elements. So, you know, with like um, kind of past dependency, but also with that in some countries, it is indeed second order. You know, also when you look at like how many people vote uh, or better not vote <laughs> in EP elections, then of course it makes difference, you know, that a um, lot of politicians who are successful on the federal level want to stay on the federal level. They don't want to go to the, to, to the European Parliament, particularly when you have a country where, uh, which is um, with a lot of Euroscepticism or, you know, it's like pro having problems with European integration. So of course it's not very attractive to go to the European Parliament instead of doing, um, having a, a favorable position at home. So mm. this is um, also some, some explanation. Mm. And then it just depends on, um, of, of a mixture of different uh, factors. So there is not one factor explaining it for, for all countries, I would say. Mm -hmm. And now related to that, we've heard um, in many discussions over the past couple of years um, that, and you mentioned the Spitzenkandidatenmodell, for example, that the uh, parliament and parliamentary groups want to get more power in uh, nominations, in, um, in uh, generally um, making candidacies more visible across the European Union. Does gender in any way get into these debates? So for example, have you encountered any discourse on the EP stipulating certain electoral rules that would um, generate parity across national election systems for the EP parliamentary election, if, if you know, for nothing yes. else? Yes, I mean there have been several resolutions by the by the European Parliament calling for for um, for parity regulations, but the Council so far has always rejected it. So I think even just before the last election, they had a resolution stating like, can we please have uh, a parity regulation for EP elections? Um, and the council just rejected it. So this is so this is um, this is not the policy field where you have co-decision, <laughs> apparently. Um, 
this is one of the the, the points and um, let me just think the the first part of the question was about the uh, um, Spitzenkandidatur and gender well first of all um, I think it was an interesting process um, the last one particularly before it's like it's I mean, first of all, when you look at who has been candidates, they usually take the, the, the leaders um, of the bigger parties, you know, the Euro parties also, and, and these are traditionally male. So um, that's the case for all of the Euro parties as well. It's, it's very seldom uh, differently. You had um, some of the um, parties uh, explicitly, um, the political groups explicitly nominating uh, women uh, or like a, 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 um, a double or several candidates to say, okay, this is our team. For example, the Greens also had uh, Scar Keller as, as one of her, um, as, as, her can, as, as their candidate, uh, with particularly with, with the notion saying, we finally now need a, a, a woman leader. Um, and I think in the last election, it was interesting, uh, we all know that Ursula von der Leyen uh, got elected, and it was uh, it's it's a tricky. It was I think it was quite a tricky situation since apparently no one wanted uh, Manfred Weber, <laughs> or not enough at least, or everyone was sure they can't get through. It was particularly um, refused by uh, Emmanuel Macron, just you know torpedoing the whole system, not holding something particular against Weber. I think that saying okay, no. If we now give in and let the European Parliament uh, set the candidates, then uh, we lose our veto rights or our uh, strong position as as uh, as council. So I think it was less about that um, they were holding something against uh, the candidates, but more about um, a power play between the institutions as such. And I think it was an interesting um, uh, move now with with um, Ursula von der Leyen because. She serves like several uh, aspects because, for example, the left-leaning parties are like now it's about time to have a woman commission president, you know, and this was some way of trying to collect also votes for her from the left-leaning uh, parties, even though probably not from the conservatives, you know. So it's like uh, I think it was an um, interesting play with 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 this, mm -hmm. but um, apart from that, as like one of the problems you have. Actually, was the Spitzenkandidatur is that um, the nominations come from Euro parties, but the Euro parties are not the same as the political groups. So there is some, you know, democratic difficulty, I would say, with these kind of uh, procedures. It's not really solved, and I'm curious to see how they move on with that. Mm -hmm. No idea. Very good point. Yeah, there is definitely dissonance there, and that Ursula von der Leyen capitalist on gender. Or, or capitalized on gender in order to get left and center left votes also very clear. Wow, time flies. Okay, we have, let's do one more question um, before we let you go into um, the rest of your holiday today. <laughs> um, so um, question about FEM, um, how something that could um, appear to be kind of a second class committee, the you call or the term is the neutralized committee, where committee members really do extra work on top of other committee memberships. Um, how does that, um, in your view, turn out in terms of policy making? You spun it as positive, kind of, you know, um, 
intersectional, going into different um, areas of labor, of security, social rights, and being a member of them. At the same time, isn't there something that weakens a committee when it is seen as um, kind of additional labor, additional work? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's it. There is there this, this tension is there, right? There is no no uh, way to to get around that. So it's it, of course it's it's um, particularly by, by um, you know by other committees seen as as powerless because they they say you know it's not it has not a proper membership. Do we really need it now that we have gender mainstreaming? Also, there's like have been several attempts to um, uh, get uh, rid of the committee also. Um, uh, but um, I think can the I beauty. In, can I come in on that? Because our colleague Joyce Mushaben asked, what would it take to elevate the status of from from an afterthought um, um, or a footnote to a regular committee that had more real power? Well, I'm not sure if this would actually help mm -hmm. uh, in that sense. Um, because um, so, first of all, the formal procedure would be that the um, uh, the College of Committee Chairs, I think that's the, the proper uh, institutional body for it, that they, they decide on which committee is neutralized. Which, there have been several others before. I think at the moment, the only, there are like two more, I think petition is neutralized and budget control. Because, I mean, they are not policy fields as such, but it's, it's you know, so they, they do some other important work and to make sure that other that, that MEPs um, uh, are members, um, they they do the neutralized uh, thing. So farm committee is the only one with a policy field neutralized. Um, the question is if, um, I find it hard to, 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 to estimate, you know, if you, if you elevate it to, to a normal standing committee with full membership, this also means that the, the MEPs have to decide if they sit on the farm committee or on the other committee. And this might end up that probably no one really, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's the question is who will, you know, what's, what's the, the, the decision of the, the single MEPs? Because often for the farm committee also, uh, a lot of them have been long-term members, so they have been committed there for a long time, but they also hold prestigious positions in other committees, also in the political groups. So if they have to decide to do this one or another one, mm -hmm. knowing that the farm committee will probably also not receive uh, too many legislative proposals is, is, is um, I don't know if it would be, um, would be better for the, the farm committee in the end. And the question with this, uh, why don't they get more legislative proposals? First of all, because there are no proposals <laughs> from the commission. So of course, it also depends on that, that, on the commission doing it. And then you have just generally this, this, this question of where should things go? You know, if you, let's say, I, I mean, the last one they had was, for example, one of the last ones they had was the maternity leave um, directive, which was in the end withdrawn with like, it was really it was blocked for ages, and um, it it there has been quite some discussion around that they the 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 the, the committee asked for too much in in the maternity leave directive, and that's why they um, even though they passed the plenary, the council said that's it, that's not that's totally not feasible for us, and then you have the European Parliament saying yeah, <laughs> but this is our position, and if the council doesn't put it on the plate, uh, it's not moving forward. 
So in that sense, I think it's, um, yeah, I've, uh, I think they, it's, 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 it, they're doing fairly well with this position at the moment, particularly since they really was, I think with the gender mainstreaming also how they move it forward, it has, you know, it's, it's still of course not sufficient to get like, like really gender integrated in all proposals and so, but it's moving forward. There is something you can rely on. And um, they, the, the, you know, the ongoing resolutions on it confirm that there is something behind and that it is moving forward in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get that. I hear your position that this transversal uh, involvement by, might actually be a strengthening move at, at this point, but certainly something to watch out for. And we're looking very much forward to getting results from your research project. Um, and I would like to uh, thank the audience, uh, thank Petra Ahrens for making time for us. Please check us out over the summer and see um, our new dates, hopefully for next year, for continuing some of these conversations and happy day, everybody. I'll see you around, bye-bye. Thanks so much for the invitation.